In today's episode, we open our Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapter 9. A group of Canaanite inhabitants from the city of Gibeon devise a cunning plan to deceive the Israelites. They pretend to be travelers from a distant land and seek a peace treaty with the Israelites who are in the process of conquering the promised land. Joshua and the Hebrews, unaware of the deception, make a covenant of peace with the Gibeonites. Later, they discover the truth, but they honor their commitment to protect the Gibeonites, illustrating the importance of keeping one's word in the Bible. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Wednesday, September 27th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church here in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Learn more about their translating and publishing work on their website at lhfmissions.org. But now let's join together in welcoming my guest this morning. It's the Reverend Professor Adolf Hartstadt, Professor Emeritus at Bethany Lutheran Theological Seminary in Mankato, Minnesota. He's author of two books in the Concordia Commentary series, Deuteronomy, and the book we're studying right now, Joshua. Good morning, Professor Hartstad, and welcome to the program. Good morning to you. I'm honored to be with you. Well, it's great to have you on. This is the first time that I've had you on a guest. I know that you've made your way plenty around the programs on uh, Thy Strong Word and Issues, etc., and elsewhere, but this is the first time that uh, you've been on with me, so Share a little bit about yourself, and for those at home who may not remember, uh, how has God worked through you uh, in your career? Well, where do I start? Um, I'm a graduate of uh, Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary in Mequon, Wisconsin, and then went on to graduate school at University of Wisconsin-Madison, studied under Dr. Menahem Mansour there. Uh, took a call to a church in Michigan, Alma, Michigan, and then from there to Zambia, Africa, where we lived for six years, there to California, and then 30 years of teaching here in Mankato, Minnesota at uh, Bethany Theological Seminary and Bethany College, and also coach tennis, by the way. Oh, that's great. Wonderful. Well, I'm excited to have you on. Uh, you also are the author of Deuteronomy in the Concordia Commentary Series and also Joshua. Um, those have certainly been a benefit to the to the Christendom, for sure, including our church body. Um, anything else you'd like to share before we begin our show? Uh, both my uh, grandfather and my father were um, students at uh, Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Grandpa studied under the great uh, scholar C.F.W. Walther. That's a long, long time ago. And my father later on. Um, so do we have a connection with uh, St. Louis and um, Concordia Seminary? By the way, we're, we're not that far apart here. If you're in Laverne, Minnesota, I'm in North Mankato, Minnesota. Yeah, we're I actually just you. practically neighbors. I, I could drive over in no time. <laughs> well, uh, maybe we'll have to do that one day. I've heard so much about you. But for now, I think it's probably a good idea for us to get started on our text. Um, if you don't mind, I'd like to lead us in a prayer before we begin. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you today with hearts full of gratitude and reverence as we gather around our radios and our devices for the precious gift of your word, your word which guides and sustains us in our journey of faith. 
Lord, as we delve into the passages and pages of Joshua 9, we ask for your divine wisdom, an extra measure of your Holy Spirit, insight to illuminate our understanding. May the Holy Spirit be our teacher and guide, opening our hearts and minds to that which he would have us know. Lord, we lift up those who may be listening, whether near or far. May your word reach their hearts and bring about the transformation that your spirit desires, drawing them closer to you. And as we explore the account of the Gibeonite deception in Joshua 9, may we learn the importance of seeking your guidance and discerning your will in all of our decisions. Lord, we commit this Bible study into your hands, trusting that you will speak to us through your word. May it bring glory to your name, strength to our faith, and all these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, brother, um, before we even dive into any part of our text assigned for today, which is chapter 9, uh, maybe catch folks up. In fact, yesterday we went through the uh, the ambush of I, take two, where the Israelites were finally successful after heeding God's commands. Uh, but then there was also a section in yesterday's text, which both your commentary and many others' notes uh, can be found elsewhere, say in the Dead Sea Scrolls and other places. I'm, I'm speaking specifically of verses 30 through 35. And there's some suggestions that this might be out of place in the traditional Hebrew Masoretic text. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that uh, because I promised that I would <laughs> from yesterday's show. So I hate to take you back a chapter, but could you talk just a little bit about that? Should should we be worried that that particular part where they're setting up the altar is found in different places in um, other testimonies of Scripture? No, I think it fits real well where it is in our in our texts. And uh, even if it were out of place, you know, what would really be the be the difference? Not everything in the Bible is arranged chronologically, so nothing depends on the chronology. But I think it's uh, very fitting where it, where it is in our text. Uh, it just shows the security that God gave for that special worship time with the altar and, and so forth. Um, so the hand of God in controlling the enemies all around, and we know there were enemies all around. So I, I wouldn't uh, want to change the order from what we have, but true, in the Dead Sea Scrolls it does appear elsewhere. Well, that sounds good. So I asked the question and those who are waiting for the answer, that's pretty much actually what we came up with, too. I mean, it, it, it tells a story, a slightly different story, no matter where it is in the scripture. But the overarching message, of course, remains the same. And that is that God is the one who is the power behind their victories and right worship of him is certainly good, right and salutary. Well, let's go ahead and get into our text today, because when we ended yesterday, they had been successful in their second siege against Ai through their clever tactics that the Lord had given them to do. And today, well, there's some more deception, but this time the Israelites are the ones who are being deceived, starting with chapter 9, verse 1 from the English Standard Version. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. Let's just stop there. It's only two verses, but when they heard of what? When they heard of this, they gathered together to fight. 
what is the this that they heard of? Is it the defeat of I? Well, they they talk about it later on, um, but it's many things. It's what happened in Egypt, the escape. It's what happened to the kings east of the Jordan, Sion and Og, how they were defeated by Israel. Uh, they heard about, no doubt, Jer the fall of Jericho, where the walls came tumbling down, and then finally the defeat at Ai. So all of those things, um, you know, we, we think that in ancient times, word did not spread quickly. Guess again, you know, they, they could have <laughs> runners and so forth carrying news uh, very quickly. So all of those things, I think, were, were in focus for them. And they said, we got to do something about this. Yeah. And, and so far up to this point, the Israelites have been attacking like these individual cities. So it also makes sense, I suppose, from a strategic point of view, that these five kings mentioned here, these five kingdoms, so to speak, they're creating this coalition so that they can then go and fight against the Israelites. But that really just sets the stage for the Gibeonites, that city and those inhabitants who do not join the coalition. In fact, they have another idea. Let's hear how that comes to be, starting with verse 3. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn-out torn, torn and mended with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, and they said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? And they said, Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you, and, and where do you come from? They said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come because of the name of Yahweh your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in the Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey, and go and meet them, and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you, but now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, but behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from Yahweh. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. That is the end of verse 15 and pretty much the first half of our text for today. So we see here that there's a lot of deception going on. Um, a little bit ironic as we talk about the order of events because God had just had them use deception to uh, to defeat I, and now it's kind of like I don't know. I it's I don't believe it's connected, but it's certainly interesting that now people are being deceptive 
to Joshua. Take us through this text. What does it mean for them, and what does it mean for us today? All right. First of all, who can help but uh, smile, maybe laugh out loud <laughs> at this scene of these actors? They're doing a great job of acting, aren't they? Uh, <laughs> right, right. For, first of all, they know uh, from uh, word around them that Israel under Yahweh had this policy. If cities at a distance sue for peace, then they simply become servants. But if cities in the area uh, come and confront Israel, they are to be wiped out. And Gibeon is right in the heart of the land. Um, it's it's uh, located about uh, six miles uh, northwest of Jerusalem and about 20 miles away from uh, the Jericho-Gilgal area where Israel has been. So obviously they're from right close by and they, and they know that uh, if Israel finds out that they're close by that they are going to be well, let's face it, annihilated according to the command of the Lord. Otherwise, they'd have to flee immediately. But they got another plan. Uh, you know, their faith also comes out, doesn't it? That they know Yahweh. They even need. You know, they even use that name Yahweh, the God of free and faithful grace, who revealed Himself to Moses at the burning bush. Uh, so there is. Faith, you know, there's fear, but you know they know Yahweh, and they want to be associated with Yahweh and His covenant nation of Israel, and then they will be safe. So that's their whole plan. <laughs> but the elaborate part of it is just—I'll uh, use the word "cute" at, the, at this <laughs> stage. Uh, how how good actors were they, and how long did they concoct this situation? What do they say? Let's get our, our best actors together in town and let's head down the road. And who's got some props? And uh, the props are old clothes and old wineskins and sacks on the donkeys. And, of course, where did they find the moldy bread? I, I, I don't know, but they, they rounded things up. They got a plan. Uh, give, give the guys credit, right? Give, give the guys credit. Yes, it's deception. Um, that's... The world, the world we live in, and the world they lived in, um, they're they are suing for peace under well, you, Yahweh. Yep. You talk about their acting, and you know, I will say that their props were pretty good. You know, they described them very well, right? Worn out sacks for the donkeys, worn out uh, wine skins, and worn out sandals, and even dry and crumbly bread, as you mentioned. <laughs> uh, I think that was okay. I think where they where they jumped the shark in their acting is when they insisted down in verse twelve that they, they they started pointing out all of it. You know, it wasn't just that they appeared; they had to say, <laughs> "See, look as evidence. Look at all the things." They didn't want their efforts to go unnoticed. You know, here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses. Well, that doesn't prove anything, but okay, thanks for the note. And look at you these wineskins; they were brand yeah. new. Go ahead. It, isn't that the case of bad acting in anywhere? Right. You you notice that they're acting, and we, and when we watch a good movie, we're we're supposed to believe the characters. So I think you're on to something there too. 
they really worked at being actors maybe too much and pointing, look what a good actor I, I am. Could, could uh, Joshua and Israel smell out their, their plot? At least Joshua and Israel, they have questions, don't they? Uh, who, who, really? Who, who are you guys? So I think they yeah, did fool acting. them, not so much with their acting, but perhaps with their mention of, of course, Yahweh and what he did in Egypt. Now, one of the things you said is that, you know, they, they had a semblance of faith. They wanted to be with the people of Israel. I, I, I'm curious about that. How is it that we don't just see this as part of the deception? If they're looking to just not be conquered, then they just mention Yahweh. They could falsely be calling upon his name, and they're remembering his might, which caused most of the kings to be fearful, so they're fearful too. So, you know, this idea that they want to be with the people of Israel and they have some sort of faith in Yahweh— um, is there somewhere that sort of shows that more clearly than here? Because I don't necessarily see it yet. Mm -hmm. uh, we can't read hearts, can we? So we don't <laughs> right. know exactly what was in their hearts. You know, we have something earlier in Joshua that uh, relates to this in, in a way, thematically, and that is um, Rahab, uh, who mm -hmm. hid the spies in Jericho. And But there we got the New Testament to tell us she was a woman of faith. In fact, a great woman of faith. Her faith is praised. So, you know, to put the best construction on things, and isn't that what we should do also? Even when reading the Bible and reading history, we should put the best construction on things if we can. So I like to call them people of faith, even though it's tainted faith and all that. Um, why don't they just come out and say, we believe in Yahweh and uh, be, be kind to us now? Well, they don't do that. They, they know it's got to be more complicated than that if they're going to convince uh, Joshua and, and Israel. So I guess my main point is um, we can't read hearts, but we want to put the best construction on their actions as sincere faith like Rahab. Well, and I'm, I'm going to call you to speculate just a little more. What do you think would have happened if they had to just come out and said, we are Gibeonites from Gibeon. You know, we're on your docket for, you know, destroying. Um, we're not going to join this confederation. In fact, we have put our faith, hope, and trust in Yahweh uh, what do you think would have happened if they would have done that? Would, would they have even gotten the chance to say those words if they'd have come forward toward the people of Israel from Gibeon? Again, I know it's speculation, but I'm just curious what <laughs> yeah. you think. Here's my guess. Joshua would have said, start running, guys. Uh, you, you, better, you better cross the Jordan and get on to another land because God has promised us that this land is the land of promise, and uh, it belongs to us. So that's my guess, that, that they wouldn't have been hacked down on the spot. But Because I don't like to think <laughs> about that, and uh, most people don't either. Um, probably given a chance to flee. I mean, what were the choices of the Canaanites? Flee, fight, or sue for peace, right? Uh, and if they fight, they know they're going to be defeated, just like... Well, 
the people they talked about, Sion and Og and the Egyptians. So that's my guess of what might have happened. But, but all this is what might have happened. Sure. And uh, we don't, that's not reality of what the Bible tells us. It, it, the Bible is much more interesting than our speculations. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, but your speculation did bring up something in my thoughts, and that is if they were believers in Yahweh, um, then they would have or should have been, um, I guess, submissive to the idea that their land now belongs to the Israelites. So, yeah, this idea that Joshua might have just said, well, you know, head across the river is very possible. Uh, but you, but just, just, think, just think about us. Our faith is imperfect. I mean, we're, we're saints and sinners at the same time. So it's, it's always a mixed deal the way we act, right? We act according to our new nature that believes, and we act still according to our old, beat-up, sinful nature. But we act as one person, right? We don't, we don't take two separate movements. We act as one person. So it's, it's mixed, and our joy is always that we are forgiven through our God of free and faithful grace. Uh, through Jesus, who would would come uh, 1,400 years after this Gibeonite time, uh, but that that's our joy. Not not that our faith is perfect; it certainly isn't. And and if at this time the Gibeonites um, had faith, it was not perfect either. Indeed. Well, we also you know here we have these folks who, when asked. You know, where are you from? They just sort of say, oh, it's a very far land away. And they they distract them with their crumbly bread. But at some point in the narrative, we are told, um, verse 14, so the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from Yahweh. And of course, 15, Joshua is going to make peace with them. So this do not, or they, the fact that they did not ask counsel from Yahweh, that's really the key element of this narrative, isn't it? I mean, that they didn't seek Yahweh's yes. guidance on the matter. We just talked about imperfect faith, right? And look at Israel now. If we say the Gibeonites had imperfect faith, look at Israel. Um, they should have consulted through the priests the will of God, and they didn't do it. Does it mean that they, did, they didn't have any faith? No. It means they acted according to their own old sinful nature at this point. Um, but the Bible certainly brings that out, and doesn't it? That they did not inquire of the Lord. So a huge point, as you just mentioned. Well, and whatever it is, everything that they've done in terms of their deception, their acting good or bad, their props, their obfuscating reality from where they're from, and combined with the fact that, well, the Israelites didn't consult Yahweh, it results in verse 15 where it says, Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Now, I certainly don't want to jump ahead, especially to another day's text, but they're going to keep this. They're going to be faithful to this despite um, it being done under false pretenses. So treaties today, contracts today, um, if, they're, if they're arranged under false pretenses, there's no obligation by the, the signatories to, <laughs> to agree to it. 
Uh, here, of course, they they they're going to keep this mm-hmm. covenant, even though it was made by deception. Um, is that something that God calls us to do? I mean, how does this text so far, and we got plenty more to go, but how does this speak to us? I mean, certainly we should be consulting the Lord, but I don't know. I mean, are, are we to just submit to the fact that people will deceive us? How would you answer that, brother? Well, if we swore to something that is inherently sinful, then we must not carry on with inherently sinful actions, right? We must break then what what we swore to. Uh, but this is a little bit different. They swore in the name of Yahweh to make peace with these people. And uh, they're not going to undo what they swore in the name of Yahweh. Because there could still be the best possible outcome without going back on their word and oath in the name of Yahweh. And we, as the text uh, rolls on, we, we see what that is. Uh, but to get to your, your question, which deals with how can we apply this, should we keep our word no matter what? Well, if, if our word leads us to continue to sin, no, we, then we should, we should not, we dare not, because, well, it's against the will of God. Uh, but if, if we swore to something, then, and it's hard to keep my promise, but I made that promise and I swore in the name of the Lord, so what if it hurts? Uh, keep, your, keep your word. Uh, didn't God do that? Didn't God swear that in the seed of Abraham all the world was going to be blessed? And isn't Jesus the seed of Abraham? And didn't God keep his oath the hard way by having Jesus sacrificed mm-hmm. on the cross? I mean, to me, that, that thought brings out what, what we should do. Um, I, did I kind of get to your Yeah, I, it sounds to me, and it's, a, it's certainly a good word, too, that they're their decision to continue to respect this oath speaks as much about the character of Yahweh as it does for the character of the people. And so if Joshua is certainly a type of the Christ to come, uh, but the people of Israel certainly a type of the Christ to come, and I guess we're the anti-type to them too in some ways, um, but we see here that, that God's commitment to his promises is reflected by their commitment to theirs, and that's that's certainly mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. certainly a good thing to take away from it. Well, brother, we are yeah. right here at our break, so that's what we're going to have to take. But, folks, I don't want you to go anywhere when we come back. The good professor and I will keep on going through the rest of Joshua chapter 9. See you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. 
Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. And with me today is the Reverend Professor Adolf Hartstad, Professor Emeritus at Bethany Lutheran Theological Seminary in Mankato, Minnesota, just up the road for me. He's also the author of the Concordia commentary book, Joshua, among many other things. Dear saints, loved by God, thank you for carving out some time to be with us in God's Word today. Comments or questions about the program can be directed to me at pastorboo at gmail.com. Spell it right. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook. Don't hesitate to reach out. I love hearing from listeners, just like I heard from the listener Lori, who after our Joshua 5 episode wrote in with some questions about baptism. I'm going to be answering those questions, good questions too, in the email that I respond to her with, but I'm going to work it into some of our own uh, episodes, and that's how it works. When you come to me with your thoughts and your questions and your comments, I'm able to work it into the show so that you're getting as much out of our studies as I do. Well, back to the Bible. So I'm going to keep on reading, uh, brother, and we will see where the story takes us, starting with verse 16. At the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now, their cities were Gibeon, uh, Chef. Pirah, and Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jarim. But the people of Israel did not attack them, because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by Yahweh the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to the congregation, We have sworn to them by Yahweh the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leader said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. All right, so just pausing right there at the end of verse 21. So we talked about this already. I, I jumped the gun a little bit. But in this text, we see here that they are faithful to their uh, covenant with the Gibeonites, despite the fact that they were deceiving them. And they do tell us why, as you already said, because, well, they swore to them by God and they're going to keep their promises. But at the same time, we see two different groups here. We see the leaders, that is, uh, Joshua and the, and the, I guess, the other elders and leaders. And then you have what they call, or what the writer here calls, the congregation. The congregation there, I'm assuming, brother, is just the rest of the Israelites. But it sounds like the common yeah. people don't like it. They don't like that they we're going right. to keep our promises. Uh, take us through that. Yeah, okay. We have to appreciate the dilemma, right? That's what this text is all about, a dilemma that Israel is in now. And what creates the dilemma? God's command was to destroy the people that lived nearby. That hasn't happened, right? They swore at the same time to a covenant of peace with these people who lived nearby. What are we going to do now? We got conflicting things. What's the best solution? Uh, dilemma, conundrum, whatever word we want to use. Two things coming together that seem to be opposing each other. 
how shall we handle it? Well, they handle it the best possible way. Uh, what was your immediate question there? I, I want to make sure that I really touch on. What oh, I don't did. even know if I had one. I just <laughs> said, you know, I, but but I'm think, but I am thinking though. Well, I was talking about how the congregants themselves, the people of Israel, they yeah, were kind yeah. of ready to say, nope. Nope, this was done under false pretenses, fruit, yeah. <laughs> fruit of the poison vine or whatever. Um, you know, we we don't want to honor this. In fact, I think they could make a reasonable argument that goes something sure. like, God wants us to destroy these people. They deceived us. God yeah. already given us instructions according to them, so we shouldn't be held to our, our covenant. So, and, and I don't know, I think that would have almost... At least logically, it sounds right. Yeah, it's a common reality, though, isn't it? That uh, we're, we're, uh, we want to criticize our leaders for doing something stupid. And uh, we, the people, you know, we, it should be all our, our say. So the people are accenting what God had said initially, destroy these people nearby. And now they are faulting their leaders for making this covenant of peace. And yes, their leaders are at fault, aren't they? They did not seek the Lord in all this. Um, you know, how does the Lord want us to handle it? They, they didn't do that. So once again, we're at this dilemma now. And plus we got the, the main crowd angry at us now, we leaders. Uh, but we leaders know that we swore in the name of Yahweh. And we can't just break what we said. We trust him. Um, and we want we need to carry through on what we swore in his name. But it's one of these dilemmas of life for Christians that we don't know which way to go and uh, what what should what should guide us and what's going to be the solution uh, to it. Well, we learn what what the Bible says was the solution in this case, and God agrees with that solution. So uh, all is not lost, even though there was deception on the part of the Gibeonites. There was uh, sin on the part of Israel for not inquiring of the Lord. Got us into this terrible fix, this dilemma. But now we're going to come up with the best possible solution. So they find out basically just three days after they had made the covenant, and it stands out to me that they went and they ch checked out their cities, right? Verse 17, the people of Israel set out, they reached their cities on the third day. Their cities, so kind of like mm -hmm. the Philistines, uh, the five-city confederation, uh, yeah. we have a confederation here too. So when they made mm -hmm. this uh, covenant with the Gibeonites, I guess it automatically includes the allies of the Gibeonites. There were some cities listed off here, though. Uh, but all of these cities, now it's actually a, a larger group of people than just the Gibe city of uh, yeah. Gibeon. Um, you know, I guess it's it just seems so improbable that they would have kept this covenant despite all of the deception, and yet it stands out that they that they do. And it is beautiful. And what you say about the people kind of blaming the leaders and, and washing their hands of it, boy, isn't that true too? Uh, there's so much that I think we can 
we can learn from from this text on how we should behave. But yeah, I just think it's interesting because it's not just the Gibeonites. Now we have a larger group of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we don't have a formula for how to handle our moral dilemmas here. We do have what Israel did, and we do learn that it was approved by God. So I don't think we can find this um, paradigm for solving all dilemmas for Christians here and in, in, uh, how they handled it. Um, it may be decided that we handle our moral dilemmas in, in a, another, another way. Uh, but this is what we have here. It's, it's simply reporting the facts. It brings out the historical reality of the Bible too, doesn't it? that uh, these are real events with real people at real places, and this is what happened in the course of salvation history in, in the Old Testament. Uh, see, you, you were bringing up um, the idea of these uh, other cities now. I wonder if the cities got together and said, you Gibeonites, uh, you have a reputation as being really good actors. Why don't you be the spokes?" Spoke I was going to say, for, for something like that, maybe <laughs> they're the ones it. that have all the worn-out wineskins and crumbly bread, so they have to go do it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there, there you go. We're, we're doing a lot of speculating here, and we want to make sure that we say this is speculation, and this is what the Bible actually says. That's true, uh, and we do a lot of speculation on thy strong word, at least under my helm, because you know it, it's fun to speculate. But you're absolutely right. At the end of the day, we just don't know sometimes, and and this is one of those cases too. But we do know from verse 21, the leaders said to the congregation, "Let them live." Right? The the people were concerned because are these devoted to destruction people? I mean, we saw what happened to Achan when he preserved, let's say, that which was devoted to destruction. And here we are preserving a whole group of people who lied yeah. to us. Mm-hmm. So I think the the people who are upset with their leaders are reasonably so because they're worried about that karem, however you might pronounce it, command, yep. right? things that are devoted. But, so, but, but the but, leaders say, go ahead, please. But the one big difference is the oath in the name of Yahweh. And we didn't have that in the case of Achan, and thus he was he was uh, executed. So this is a different, little bit different scene. I mean, I mean, it is, absolutely. Dilemma. But Achan certainly couldn't have said, in the name of Yahweh, I'm going to devote this gold to my pocketbook instead of destruction. Even had he yeah. made an oath to someone, I'm going to, in the name of Yahweh, um, take some silver and gold, and I think it was a cloak or something that doesn't belong mm-hmm. to me. Um, mm-hmm. So, I, I, yeah, but you're absolutely right. It certainly is different circumstances. But I think, and I don't think it's speculation, that that is where the consternation of the people come from. You know, they, they've seen mm-hmm. the extreme, I mean, they literally stoned him and his whole family for hiding away some gold. And then... They uh, get this victorious uh, second chance at I because they follow the Lord. And now it's like we're back to not listening to the Lord again from their perspective. But even going a little further, it says they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation. So they were, I guess, lack of a better word, pressed into servitude. I mean, they were the servants now of the people of Israel. So I, I guess that's preferable to annihilation. Oh, absolutely. And they agreed to that from the beginning, didn't they? They said, we are right. your servants. 
So if we have peace with you, we'll, we'll be your servants. And they, they got their way. So, Well, let's keep on reading and see how the narrative continues. Joshua, starting with verse 22, Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, this is the Gibeonites, Why did you deceive us, saying, We are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now, therefore, you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, Because it was told to your servants for a certainty, that Yahweh your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you, and we did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But... Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of Yahweh to this day in the place that he should choose. And that ends our text, ends the chapter. Uh, You know, we talked earlier. I said, you, brother, had said that they were using the name of Yahweh and they wanted to be with the people of Israel. And I asked, you know, where's the evidence of that? And certainly it's partly speculation. Certainly part of it is very much an educated guess. Um, I think the educated guess comes from this section because, again, we can't read the heart, but it does seem like they are both remorseful for their actions and ready to accept the consequences. Uh, am I reading that situation correctly? Absolutely. And, uh, and more than that, they are always being in contact with the God of free and faithful grace as they do these jobs, right, of having the wood for the sacrifices and carrying water for the sacrifices. So they're always in contact with, I'll use the term, the gospel, right? And the gospel is effective, isn't the name of your program, Thy Strong Word. And that's going to have an effect on their heart. So maybe not all of them were believers initially. Maybe some of them were and some of them weren't. Uh, But they are in contact with the God of grace of Israel, the God of promise. Uh, so they, they know that uh, a Messiah is coming also. The prophet is, mm-hmm. is coming down the line. So maybe that kind of is the middle ground on, on whether they are believers or not. We know that they're in contact with his strong word. Oh, absolutely. I mean, in verse 25, just that language of whatever seems good and right to you. So I don't think we're in the place to judge, you know, whether they were always believers. Maybe it started out as just a ruse to save their skins. But then, of course, the faithfulness to that covenant by Joshua, who knows if that didn't lead them to a stronger faith in Yahweh and their God. Again, all speculation, I know. We have to fill an hour, brother, so that's why we do a lot of speculating. <laughs> but, 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 but isn't, isn't this uh, church history uh, all over the place where, oh, where yeah. whole, whole peoples, because their king says, you are now Christians, <laughs> um, whole yep. peoples are, are welcomed into the Christian church 
we, we don't know if any of them were believers at the time. Uh, but now they're in contact with the Word. Uh, and, uh, you know, some of them are you and me and our families from way back when. Um, the king says, you convert, you converted. Well, was it conversion of the heart? I don't know. <laughs> uh, but once again, thy strong word does a job and turns hearts. Could you talk a little more about what the drawing of the water and the cutters of wood um, signified? Like, what was that for? It's I, I, I kind of know, but I'm I'm thinking it's it's yeah. pretty important duties, even though they are servants' duties. It's still a participation in something very important. Yeah, for one thing, it seems to be in keeping with what these people did initially. Uh, Gibeon is known for its water source. Uh, if you visit the site to this day, you can go to the steps that lead down to the pool at, at Gibeon. Um, hmm. And uh, woodcutters, there are the names of these cities uh, can relate to, to that too. So they, they knew the job, you know, they knew how to fell trees and they knew how to carry water. Uh, so, but now that does relate to the sacrifices need, needed uh, for water, uh, the, the water and the wood for the burning of the animals and so forth. So um, in the, they're at the heart of the worship of Israel, true as lowly servants, so that the Israel uh, priests didn't have to do that work, but they're they're right there at the heart of the worship. I'd I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God, right? That's very much <laughs> what they're doing. Yeah, they're they're putting together what previously they may have done in their own name, and now they're putting those skills to work for the Lord and His people. And, um, and these things, yeah, these things would they would have been done uh, earlier at the tabernacle. You know, the tabernacle. Um, moved around from uh, Gilgal to Shiloh and then to uh, Gibeon. And this is all before the temple was built in Jerusalem. Because we have a long ways before the temple is built in Jerusalem. But we know that they continued their work there because they are perpetual uh, water carriers and wood carriers. Uh, so quite a blessed activity they have, even though they are low, lowly servants. And and they would have been joining others who are already in that, uh, I guess, social position amongst the Israelites. I'm thinking of Deuteronomy 29. It says that, um, you know, you are standing today, all of you, before Yahweh your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders, your officers, the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the sojourner who is in your camp, from the one who chops your wood to the one mm -hmm. who draws your water, so that you may enter into the sworn covenant of Yahweh your God. So th they are joining other people. Th they didn't create this role for them just to kind of get out of the situation. They basically said, you wanted a covenant with us. We made the covenant with you. You were deceptive in your covenant. So... You don't really – actually, they really don't have the same position of honor as, say, a, another nation with whom they have a treaty. But now you're our servants. You join those sojourners who certainly receive the benefits of God's mercy and grace and covenant. But 
are not among the people of Israel. And that reminds me of when Jesus comes and he tells the truth, but it's offensive to us. He says, I've come first for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Uh, the, the people God chose remained uh, in a preferential state uh, up through Jesus. And, and I think that's something that is a little scandalous to our modern ears where everybody and every culture is supposed to be equal and interchangeable. But, but remember, Israel itself was a mixed group. Um, Moses had married a Midianite woman. That means that his children were a mixed race. Uh, Joseph had married an Egyptian woman. That means that Ephraim and Manasseh were half Egyptian and half, half uh, Jewish. So we, we have a mixed group in Israel generally. So God's point was not to have an ethnically pure nation, but mm -hmm. a spiritually pure nation under the covenant. So who is Israel? It's all of these people under the covenant, regardless of their bloodline. Remember, Jesus himself is from uh, the line of Rahab, the Canaanite. So even Jesus, the quintessential Israelite, is not ethnically pure in that regard. That doesn't make any difference. It's a beautiful um, example for, for us today, isn't it? Whether we're rich or poor or, or what race, what color our skin is, kingdom of God, it doesn't make a bit of difference. It's uh, by grace through faith we're saved and we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. So we get something of a picture of that with the Gibeonites here too, these Canaanites who join Rahab and the rest of uh, the people of the land who are now faithful. You write in your commentary, in the service of Yahweh, even the most menial job is a privilege and an honor. St. Paul tells slaves, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Um, how do we reconcile in our current environment of hyper-equality and equity and inclusion? <laughs> how, do we, how do we help people understand how there can be basically different classes or castes of people within the house of Israel, even though the house of Israel is being ruled according to God's will? Um, I guess how do we how do we wrestle with that in today's uh, environment? Well, we recognize that we live in two kingdoms, right? We live in the kingdom of this world in which we do have these differences, and we live in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of grace, in which there is no more male nor female, and Jew, Gentile, whatever. So that's the reality of of our life. We have rich people, we have poor people who are Christians. Uh, as far as the kingdom of God goes, it doesn't make any difference. We, we're never going to be all make the same amount of money. I mean, Abraham was a tremendously rich man, and there were a lot of poor people too, comparatively poor, and yet God took care of them all. Um, so we're, we're not going to make everybody happy, let, let's face it. Uh, a Christian doesn't have to be a communist and say you will all make exactly the same money. People can have their different political systems as, as they choose, but the kingdom of God is different. Uh, we are all one in Christ, no matter who we are, through faith in Jesus.
Well put, sir. Well, we're coming close to the end of our program, and I want to make sure that you have the final word. So any last thoughts or overarching thoughts you'd like to share with the listeners from our study of Joshua 9 today? Well, they came up with the best possible solution, and they erred on the side of letting them live, right? And if we think about that word lived, Jesus said, I've come that you may live and have life abundantly. Uh, And what is the abundant life? It's living with the forgiveness of Christ uh, and living for eternity with him. And the Gibeonites, uh, they let live, and I'd like to think that that includes the, the greatest kind of life, life under God in his kingdom here and for eternity. Let them live. Amen to that. Folks, I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Professor Adolf Hartstad, Professor Emeritus at Bethany Lutheran Theological Seminary in Mankato, Minnesota. He's also the author of the Concordia Commentary on Joshua. Pastor, thank you so much for being on the show. It was a privilege to talk with you. I can't wait to have you on again. Great to be with you. Thanks. Folks, tomorrow we're going to move into chapter 10. Uh, The Gibeonites in this section have drawn the ire of their surrounding kings and nations in that confederacy. Uh, Of course, so have the Israelites. They both now face a coalition of Amorite kings who are going to unite to battle them. But Joshua and his army are going to achieve a miraculous victory by the intervention of God himself, including sort of the prolonging of the day, right? The the sun is going to stand still. Well, this is going to allow them to be triumphant. They'll defeat the Ammonites, Amorites, pardon me. They'll capture their leaders, and they're going to consolidate their control over the promised land. That's all tomorrow. Lots of good stuff to talk about. But until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in thy strong word. <laughs>